All right. But before we get into the book of Proverbs, and we will, I, I do want to read something from Ephesians chapter 4. So open your Bibles to start to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17. I, on Thursday night this past week, I, I, I decided to suspend the study of Zechariah until after Labor Day. Uh, I confess in part that's because just this August I feel like I need a tiny little bit of a break for myself. Not that I'm not doing anything, but I, I, I found it very good and edifying to pull out a couple of these old studies that I wrote years ago from Proverbs. And this past Thursday night, I pulled out a study that I had written from Proverbs on the subject of, of money and wealth and what the Bible says about handling that in a godly way. And it was actually perfect because if you remember in James chapter 5, it spoke of the oppression that many of the believers received at the hands of the ungodly rich and powerful in their society. And, uh, and so I remember saying during the sermon last week that, you know, uh, it's it, it, like that's another subject for another day. So I made last Thursday that another day, and we went through that. And if you want to come out this Thursday night, you'll hear the conclusion of that. But one of the things I said on Thursday night was uh, one of the most important subjects that comes up in the book of Proverbs is that of righteousness. Righteousness is a term that basically means doing what's right. And the book of Proverbs speaks of it constantly. Every chapter you're going through, it seems, there's some reference to the blessings of righteousness. Now, for the student of the Bible, this perhaps creates a little bit of a challenge of understanding because we may wonder how does this relate because we're told from the moment we first become Christians, there's none righteous. No, not one. And I want you to be careful about something because it is absolutely true that none of us is righteous to the degree that we're not in need of what the table represents. We can't justify ourselves by righteousness. So righteousness as a means of justifying oneself or securing one's place before God. Righteousness of a person is impossible because we've all sinned and we all fall short of the glory of God. But what then? Does that mean that the practice of righteousness is something that a person who loves God should not concern himself with, should not worry about. Why, do I, why am I worried about even thinking about doing what's right when I'm told that there is none righteous? No, not one. Well, I think the answer to that comes 
in many of the writings of the New Testament where we are told not only in in books like Romans and Galatians and throughout the Gospels that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness, but also we're told things like Paul said here in Ephesians chapter 4, that I want you to put off the old man and put on the new man who was created in true righteousness and holiness, right? And so it's a reference then to how we live. So there is the concept of righteousness in as much as it applies to an absolute perfection that is only received by God's grace through faith in Christ when His righteousness is imputed to us when we believe. But then there, also, there is all this, this issue of this practical day-by-day living. This is very important. It's very important for every Christian to know that while we have been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've also been left here with the charge to be His ambassadors and to be His witnesses. And part of that, a great part of that, is the testimony of your conduct. And you hear me say this all the time, and for as long as I will be your pastor, you'll hear me to continue to say it. Because this is, when it comes to teaching Christians now, we need to be reminded of our salvation secure only by the grace of God, but also told what the New Testament writings say about how we ought to live while we're here. We're charged with a mission as Christians. It is not a mission to try to justify ourselves. That happened when you believed. It is a mission to glorify God and to fulfill His purposes for your life and for the church's life in reaching out with the gospel and being a light and a testimony to this world. And how you live matters. I don't remember what year I wrote this, but I want to read to you this introduction that I wrote years ago. And then I'm going to read to you from Ephesians chapter 4. And then we're just going to take a look. And this will take us a couple of weeks. But I hope this is edifying for you, as it has been for me as I looked it over again. Uh, we're going to talk about the importance of the practice of righteousness in a person's life. Let me say a prayer first. Thank you, most holy Lord God, as we have seen today portrayed at your table that he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We thank you, Lord, that the person who has faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, not the person who works, not the person who strives, not the person who tries to justify himself, but the person who humbles himself and believes that person is justified through faith in Christ. But then, Lord, how do we live? And as we read your word, we see, Lord, many exhortations and commands concerning the life of the godly, the life of of the upright, the life of the righteous. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us to be zealous, to live in a manner that pleases you, knowing we can never justify ourselves, but still we have these lives, and we want to live in a way where we're a good testimony to our families, to our neighbors, to our friends. We want to live lives that are a platform from which we speak about you, 
and your grace and your love and your mercy and your transforming power. Help us to be authentic and consistent in life and in word. As we read and study today, I think, I pray that these things would be clear to each one of us and that you would give us your strength and wisdom to be doers of what you tell us. I ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, if you come on Thursday nights, you're familiar with the practice of me reading an introduction. So let me read this to you. That I can't even remember what year I wrote it, but it sets the stage. And then I'll read the passage from Ephesians, and then we'll take some verses from Proverbs and consider them. Righteousness, as a biblical term, defines the condition of someone standing before God as demonstrated by their deeds or by their works. Put more simply, it is essentially to do what is right in the sight of God. God established what is right in His sight by His law. What was right before God already, what was right before God, but His law codified it for men. The Ten Commandments are an expression of that law. There are more than Ten Commandments in God's law. But that famous first installment given to Moses and the children of Israel codifies and perfectly summarizes the moral expectations of God upon man in every situation in life. A righteous man, essentially, is one who has no other gods but the God who gave Moses and the children of Israel this law, makes no images for worship, uses God's name only with great reverence, rests one day and seven as God did, honors his parents, and does not murder or even hate in his heart, commit adultery or even lust in his heart, steal, lie, or lust for the possessions, material or otherwise, of others. That's a righteous man. Since no man other than the Lord Jesus Christ has ever lived a life in perfect obedience to this law, every man falls short of that. Right? We fall short of his righteousness. And so we're all doomed to the consequence, death, which ultimately is an eternity in hell. But death is the consequence for sin. This is, of course, why Christ died. To suffer that consequence in our place. And it is God's ultimate expression of love for you. Quoted this a minute ago. For He hath made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 By trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing that He is the Son of God, that He died for your sins and that He rose from the dead, the unrighteousness of your life is exchanged for the righteousness of His. And we are thus justified before God and saved. That's the essence of Romans chapter 3 and really the whole book of Romans. But what then of righteousness as a practice? While it's true that there is no righteousness as a means of justification that's satisfactory to God other than the righteousness of Jesus, is there no place for a practical day-by-day life of righteousness for a believer. That's really the crux of the question, right? Since we can't live in a righteous way that justifies us before God, and the only way we can be justified is through faith in Christ, should righteousness be something that we even think about? Or should we just 
Or should we simply just live? And however we live, we live. And we're just thankful, of course, for His grace. But since we can't justify ourselves, we don't even pursue it. Or is righteousness something that should be pursued as a practice, as a practice in life by a Christian? Well, I think when you ask it that way, I hope anyway that I'm sitting in a room full of people for whom it is self-evident, that of course we should try to do what's right in your life because there's many other reasons why. There are many other benefits to it. And it pleases God. It glorifies God when a person has put before them obey or disobey, and they obey. Right? Of course, there's a major place for it. The book of Proverbs says much about the subject. And here's where you need to understand Proverbs. As I've explained many times before, the book of Proverbs is a great book of practical wisdom. Practical is what we're talking about when we talk about righteousness. When the book of Proverbs talks about righteousness, it's talking about a practice, a practical righteousness. It's talking about doing what is right. It's not so much a theology of justification as it is an instruction manual for how I ought to live today and tomorrow if God gives me tomorrow. Right? What Proverbs does is makes makes living a righteous life something that, beyond the issue of salvation is eminently wise and productive and wholesome and good. You get that? Righteousness practiced beyond the issue of salvation, which it can never bring. Only Christ's righteousness brings that. Beyond that, it is productive, wholesome, and good. It does glorify God, though we could never live so righteous that we would not need the shed blood of His Son to save us from our sin. Now, I ask you to open to Ephesians chapter 4, and I'd like to read beginning in verse 17. So you can see that in the New Testament, this should be familiar ground for you, and if you plan to continue to come to our church after today, expect to hear this again and again and again, all right? Because the Bible just keeps bringing us back to these things, and that's our job in church is to remind believers of these things again, again, and again. And this relates to some extent to what we were talking about last week, right? Last week in the climactic verses of the book of James, we were talking about how people need to turn to God, right? In persecution and trial, turn to God. If someone strays and wanders away, turn him back to God. If there's a lost person in darkness and in ignorance, preach to them the truth and turn them to God each other in fellowship with each other. Encourage each other to go to God. Are you struggling? Turn to God. Are you sick? Turn to God. Are you rejoicing? Sing psalms. Right? Are you you suffering? Turn to God. Turn to God. The same is true with this. We turn to God for His wisdom and His guidance and a direction for practical day-to-day living. And here's what He says. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, 
who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. And I want to point out to you that the emphasis of that statement is how you live. Right? First three chapters of Ephesians lay out the case that salvation is only by God's grace through faith and not of yourselves, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Then that being settled, the person who says a hearty amen to that and receives Christ by faith is told, now here's how once having believed you ought to walk. 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 Don't walk like the rest of the Gentiles. Gentiles there being used, I think, perhaps in its more generic understanding, meaning simply the world. Don't walk like the rest of the world walks. Don't just live now like the rest of the world lives. You can't save yourself. God opened your eyes to the truth. God gave you His Son, whose broken body has shed blood to sacrifice for your sins. God granted you to repent and to believe. He's made you His child. Now don't walk like the rest of the world anymore. Don't walk like you used to walk before you knew the truth. Don't walk like you used to walk before you understood that God's going to come and judge the entire world one day. Don't walk like that. I testify in the Lord, he says. Note those words. I testify in the Lord. In other words, I'm telling you what God's will is here. I testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Look, in the futility of their mind. In other words, what they think is futile. What they think, though they think highly of themselves, and they can try to justify themselves, is all futile. Their understanding is darkened. They're alienated. That means separated, outside, completely out. The world is completely outside of the life of God apart from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't walk like them, is what he's saying. The world is outside the life of God, alienated from the life of God by their ignorance, by their lack of faith, by their words, by their rejection of Christ, by their rejection of God. The world is alienated from that life. The Gentiles alienated from that life. And so his solution is, don't you walk like them then. The Christian's called to live a life that's different. Verse 20, you have not so learned Christ. Indeed, if you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. In other words, you have not learned from Christ that it's okay to live like the rest of the world lives. That's not what the Gospel has taught you. You've not been taught that the Gospel simply believe and be saved and just go on living like the rest of the world. That's what he's saying. You have not been taught that. Here's what you've been taught. Verse 22. That you, you, raise your hand if you understand that when he says you, he means you. Raise your hand. Do you understand that? Do you understand when he says you, he means you. He doesn't mean someone else. He doesn't mean himself. Which is sometimes what people think. That God will just do this. God will work it in you to do it, but you do it. You work it out. He works in you to will and to do for His good pleasure. You work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You live out what He works in. But you do it. You've not so learned Christ. 22 But here's what you're going to do. You're going to put off 
concerning your former conduct, the old men... Look at the, just consider the phrase, those two, former conduct. Did you know that? That as a Christian, there is former conduct. Sometimes we don't even realize that. But there is a, there is a line of delineation in the mind of God that someone before they knew Him had a former conduct. There was a way that they lived in the past. And it was a way that was not characterized by the pursuit of righteousness. It was the way that looked just like the rest of the doomed world around them. Well, he says, put it off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. In other words, it's it's an eloquent way of saying, start thinking about this differently. Be renewed, that means refreshed, changed, transformed, right? In the spirit of your mind. S is lowercase there. Because it's a reference to the mindset, the spirit, the workings of the inner man. You need to have a completely new attitude about how you live once you're in Christ. You did not learn through Christ in the Gospel that, okay, I'm saved, now I'm just going to continue on how I live. No. Your former conduct gets put off now. And you're renewed. A completely new attitude in the spirit of your mind. Look at And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. In true what? Righteousness and holiness. Right? So it starts with the attitude. It starts with a desire. It starts with the workings of the inner person saying, yes, Lord, I'm not in the world anymore. You've brought me out of the world, so I don't want to just live like the world anymore. I don't want to just pursue all the same things that this lost, fallen world is pursuing in their entertainments and their appetites and their pleasures. I don't want to fill my mind with all the same entertainments and talk and garbage and attitudes. I don't want to work my way through life just going the rest of the way that the world does, the way that I used to. If I used to be arrogant if I used to be insolent, if I used to be manipulative and deceitful and dishonest and violent, my attitude now ought to be that's not what I learned from Christ to live that way. That's not what Christ came and taught. You have not so learned Christ. No, what Christ came and taught was that you put off those deeds along with everything that you were. And you put on the new man who is renewed according to true righteousness and holiness. Now the pursuit of your life is to do what's right and to be holy. Peter said it, quoting from Deuteronomy. How dare he quote from the Old Testament? Doesn't he know that we're not under the law anymore? How dare he quote from Deuteronomy? Well, he did. Be holy, for I am holy, he says. It's a practical command. You've been made holy through faith in Christ. That's done. That's settled. Now, how you live out your days ought to be the pursuit of a life that's consistent with that change that has happened in here because of His power, His Holy Spirit, His working. You follow me? 
there's a tambourine in here. Do you notice that? I just noticed that when I went like this. Look at that. I, I just realized the pulpit pounding game has been stepped up a level today. There you go. All right. There's also a cup of coffee in there, so I want to be careful about what I do. Verse 25. We'll get to Proverbs just for a couple of minutes in a minute because I told next week we're going to really do this. But Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth to his neighbor, for we're members of one another. So it, it, it's the example that he goes to. He chooses an example, right? One of the commandments of the law is you shall not bear false witness. Who who's fulfilled that perfectly in their lives? If you raise your hand and say you did, you just broke it again, right? So 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 don't so don't try that. Other than Jesus, we've all told our lies, right? So it's not like we can stop lying and justify ourselves before God. Christ died and took the punishment for all of our lying. But now practically we're told what? That characteristic of the old man, that characteristic of the Gentiles, that characteristic of the world that I'm coming to destroy, now that you're in Christ, put it off. That's what he says, right? Actually he says, put it away. Right? That's a toy you're done playing with. Put it away and forget it. Putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Right? Uh, the, the, the incredible thing about that statement is in a couple of weeks when we go back to Zechariah, you'll see it because that's actually a, a quotation from Zechariah and it's all, we're almost in the chapter where it shows up. So... That was almost timed perfectly to land at the same point, but not quite. But you'll see that again. But there he is, Paul, again, again, the Old Testament being quoted and speaking of a repentant, changed life, saying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Look, because we're me- look at the rationale given. Because we're members of one another. Stop. Meditate. Think of what that means. We are members of one another. What illustration that Paul used elsewhere comes to mind? The illustration of a, a body, right? And, and you think of them, you can hear the words echoing in your head from 1 Corinthians. Can the hand say to the foot, get out of here, we don't need you. When one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers, Right? You know that if you get a headache, if you get a toothache, if you twist your ankle, whatever. You throw your back out, whatever. It, 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 it affects everything. We're members of one another. When we lie to one another, we hurt each other and we hurt the whole body. And so Paul says the new way to live is to get rid of that and all the other sins. Put it away. You don't, you, that's not what you learned from Christ. That's what you learned from your Christlessness. That's what you learned from your godless past. That's what you learned from all of the godless examples and the deceptive, stealthy, satanic influence that characterized your life before you believed the gospel. That's where you learned that. that the, mankind learned about lying to get their own way in the Garden of Eden. Has God really said if you eat that? Uh, I don't know. 
I think, I think that it, what God's really concerned about is that you'll be wise and you'll be like God if you... Go ahead, eat it. Right? That's where, that's where, that's where man learned that. Put that away. That's not what you learned from Christ. And that's, that's just the example that he gives. But verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Right? That's also characteristic of the old man. We get angry and we lash out and we sin and we, and we go back to the old man and we revert to ways that we're supposed to put off as Christians. Verse 27 says we're giving place to the devil when we do that. Let him, stole, let him who stole steal no longer. You wouldn't go and witness to someone and say this to them, right? How can I be saved? Well, if you stole, stop stealing. If you lied, stop lying. No, this is not a message for the lost because there's no amount of doing good that could ever like save us, right? And yet here it is in the Bible. You're being told, don't lie anymore. Don't steal anymore. Don't get angry and lash out in anger anymore. Why are you being told that? Because the life of the Christian ought to characterize, ought to exemplify the work of power and change that has occurred in us when we believed. Follow? What a meaty passage of Scripture this is. And profound. And deeply reaching into the life of every Christian. This passage of Scripture is for you. And it is for me. Verse 29 Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth except what's good for necessary edification. Boy, imagine that. You understand that he means us, right? You you understand that that's that's not like he's trying to give something out there so he can show people that, well, I can't really do that, so I just need to turn to... He's not like preaching the law because he's trying to stir up the knowledge of sin. He's speaking to Christians and telling them how they ought to live. When you talk, Don't let anything come out of your mouth except that what might build other people up, which is what edification. If every Christian obeyed this and lived by this and only spoke in such a way that it was for necessary edification, we spoke in a way that we knew would build other believers up, which doesn't just mean pie in the sky, oh, he's nice. and No, there are times you have to rebuke and confront things, but even that can be done with a way, in a way that is geared towards seeking building and edification. If every Christian just used their words to build... That's what we're commanded to. That's what we're told. Told not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God in verse 30. Told in verse 31, all bitterness, rank, uh, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, put it away with all malice. Put it all away. Verse 32, instead what? Be kind to one another tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Imagine if that typified the life of the typical body of Christians, of the typical church. It ought to. That's what we're called to. 
then what? Then the world sees what? Then the world sees that those Christians, they're different. Now listen, he's not saying to you through all of this, he's not saying to you, now that you've believed, I expect you to have all this strength to be able to be obedient like you never could before. No. What, what changes, what very practical, significant thing changes when a person believes? God enters them. Jesus said, we will come and make our abode with you. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit coming, being in someone. The paraclete, parakleto, the Greek word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit. The, I'm not a scholar of the language, but in one of my seminary classes we were told one of the, one of the best explanations is comforting presence. That's why he's called the comforter as well. Comforting presence. You now have in you God, the comforting presence of God. That's why in this passage you're told not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. He doesn't say to you, okay, now I've forgiven all your sins, so now I want you to go do all the things that you could never do before. No. What he says is, I'm in you now. Don't grieve me by continuing in all of these old sins. Rather, come to me. Turn to me. Turn to me. Lean on me. Feed on me. Pray to me. Walk with me. Draw near to me. Be close to me. Depend on me. Trust me. Fill up on me. Read my word. Meditate on my word. Pray. Pursue the things of the Spirit of God if the Spirit of God truly dwells within you. And you will find a strength that you did not have before. You will find the capacity to be obedient to the commands of God which the Bible says are not grievous. Are not burdensome. If you love me, obey my commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. We're not called to justify ourselves by works. We're called to do what He wants us to do because we love Him because He first loved us. That's different. Fundamentally and completely different ballgame. The justification issue is finished. He took care of it. He's just and the justifier of Him who has faith in Christ Jesus. Done. Believed. Sealed. Sanctified. Can't be broken. But now don't live your life grieving the Spirit in you by walking in the ways of the old man. Rip it off. Put it off. Put it away. Pretty good study of Proverbs so far, right? <laughs> Turn to Proverbs chapter 10. I'll tell you, show you one thing and then we'll be done for today. Next week we'll continue in it and we'll be in Proverbs more. That was not a random diversion. I planned to exposit Ephesians chapter 4 like that. There's more I could say, but I have to at least give you one verse from Proverbs to honestly be able to call it a study of Proverbs, right? So Proverbs chapter 10, and I know I've explained this before, but I can't risk making sure you understand that the structure of the book... Notice how Proverbs 10.1 says, the Proverbs of Solomon, like the book is starting right there. You see that? The Proverbs of Solomon. 
The reason that starts like that is because the form of the book dramatically changes when you get to chapter 10. When you start the book of Proverbs in chapter 1 and you read the first nine chapters, there are long passages, long narratives that, that especially direct his young sons not to fall into adultery, not to fall into sexual immorality, to remember the commands of his parents, right? And, and that's, that's the, there's other things, obviously, but that's one of the big gists of Proverbs 1 through 9. Then you get to Proverbs chapter 10, and it, it's almost like a new book starts, the Proverbs of Solomon. And what's funny is Proverbs 10 starts the same way Proverbs 1 does. Proverbs 1, like the first thing it says, you know, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and all that. And then it says, uh, my son, listen to the commands of your father and your mother will be like an ornament on your head and a chain about your neck, right? So you're exhorted to listen to your parents. I mean, after fearing the Lord, the first thing you're told is obey your parents which is also one of the Ten Commandments, by the way. But um, then here, it starts the same way. A wise son makes a glad father, but a foolish son is the grief of his mother. So again, it starts off by explaining the relationship between parents and son. That's a subject for another day. But then you get to verse 2. So in this beginning, in this new beginning of a new section of the book, after reestablishing the importance of the young listening to the old, and honoring the old, then the first thing he lays out is this. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but He casts away the desire of the wicked. Right? The first thing when giving out snippets pithy little tidbits of practical wisdom that would be easy to remember so that you could apply them in your living. The first thing he says is what? Walk in righteousness. Do what's right. He's not talking about justifying yourself before God. He's talking eminently, purely, practically. Treasures of wickedness profit nothing, but righteousness delivers from death And the Lord will not allow the righteous soul to famish, but He casts away the desire of the wicked. So you have both in verse 2 and in verse 3. In verse 2, you have simply the natural consequences of wickedness versus righteousness. Wickedness will lead you to death. Righteousness will keep you alive. And then in verse 3, you have the intervention of God in response to the same. God won't allow the righteous soul to famish but he casts away the desire of the wicked. So both the organic natural result of righteousness is good and the divine intervention that results from practical righteousness is good. And on the flip side, with regards to wickedness, is ultimate ruination. Now I know what you're thinking. It sure seems like the wicked get by in this world sometimes. Fear not. In the end, all will be dealt with. In the end, everything will be made right. Just like when Jesus said the first time, John the Baptist, when Jesus came the first time, John the Baptist said, every valley will be, every mountain will be leveled, the valleys will all be made smooth, right? At the coming of the Lord. He's going to level everything off. So don't fear that. You look at it and you don't look at others. You look at it and you look at yourself. The first thing a logical person would conclude from reading these verses is, I ought to live 
right before God. Not to try to save myself, but simply because it's right, it's good, it's beneficial, and it pleases God. And as a Christian, I have His Spirit in me to empower me and to guide me and to lead me in doing what I could never do without His help before. Righteousness is good when practiced. It can never lead to our own justification, but it certainly can lead to great benefit for yourself and others. And it honors God and creates a wonderful platform from which to preach the gospel. Please excuse me for taking it right up to 12 o'clock and not having time for the last hymn, but it's a lot to try to squeeze a message sometimes in on a Lord's Supper Sunday, and I wanted to make sure I said all those things. Let's just stand up together and we'll close with prayer, and that'll be the end of our service today.